This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Like all these bottoms were nothing compared to that bottom because I had a kid. I was a total failure. I was totally addicted to heroin. I was doing probably $300 worth a day at that point. I was alone. I was estranged from the family. I was waiting tables and managing cats's just loser time. And that's when I went to treatment and I met Chris, who I started Dopey with. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur. And I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to our episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. And today's guest is David Mannheim from the Dopey Podcast. Dopey Podcast is the most popular addiction recovery podcast that exists and has featured guests like Mark Marin, Jamie Lee Curtis, Margaret Cho, Danny Trejo, Jason Biggs, and many others. Dopey was created by Dave and his co-host Chris in 2016. They met in rehab in Connecticut in 2011. Chris tragically died in July of 2018, relapsing and overdosing on cocaine and fentanyl. Dave never stopped making the show and continues on to push the dopey message as far as it could possibly go. Today we discuss Dave's very entertaining and inspiring story, how addiction destroyed his career in show business before finding sobriety and starting dopey, how loneliness and discomfort led to his addiction to drugs, what kept Dave going after the tragic death of his co-host Chris, how Dave finally found recovery after battling addiction for two decades, what he believes you must do to recover from addiction, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome David Mannheim to the Adversity Advantage podcast. David Mannheim, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks, man. Very excited to be in the Zoom Riverside world with you, Doug. I guess to start, look at what I'd I'd like to ask you is you've obviously done a lot of interviews on Dopey. You've been in recovery for some time yourself. You've heard from a lot of the community and fans. Like if you had to just give the listeners like, five things that you think that people should do to be able to recover from addiction, what would they be? Oh boy. Five things to recover from addiction. Number one is don't use and or don't drink, or don't put a mood or mind altering substance into your system. Number one. Number two, talk to somebody share, be honest with somebody. It doesn't have to be a sponsor. It doesn't have to be a friend. It doesn't have to be a religious figure, just anybody so that your truth is in somebody else's world and their truth is in yours. So you're participating. Three, be as active as you can. Being active, because really in my experience and addiction is rooted in my self-centeredness. It's rooted in my selfishness. So when I'm out of my horrible head, I am better off. And if it's exercise or if it's, or if it's watching TV or watching movies or doing 
anything, shopping, even if you think it's harmful, it's probably less harmful than using or drinking. So being busy was the answer. Right. I think that was number three. Okay, number four is I would say find something, meaning I got sober in 12-step recovery. Um, and by no means do I think you need to be a member of a 12-step fellowship to be sober. But I've been thinking more and more about this as I talk to addicts and alcoholics. And I have this new, you want to hear my new analogy, Doug? Addicts and alcoholics are like hot air balloons, right? And we tether ourselves to the ground. And I think the more tethers we have, the less likely we float away. So with 12-step, I have a sponsor and I have sponsees and I have meetings and I have a program. I also have dopey. I also have a family and children and a job. And I, I used to play music. I don't really play music anymore. It's about how many things can you do that if you used, you would lose. So I, I, so I, it's my new tether analogy. So the more tethers you have, so if the program is like you have a really intense fitness regimen, but you also have a spirituality regimen, and you also do this podcast, and you also talk to addicts and alcoholics in recovery, and those things are all different tethers. And I think, so someone out there, start tethering. I think that's it. I think that's my five things. I think it was okay. only four, yeah, we'll, but it's basically five. We'll go with that because I think it's important, right? To be able to not only, obviously you have to find with what works for you. Like you mentioned 12-step recovery and people don't necessarily have to enter that world. I didn't enter that world, but it works for a lot of people. But you also have to, I think there's also common themes, right? That in order for any recovery program to work, you need to not use the drug or substance that you were abusing, right? You need to be able to talk to somebody. You need to keep yourself busy. And you need to find meaning in what you're doing and purpose, right? You have to find a, a deep reason as to why you're abstaining from a substance. Because if you're just doing it for the sake of doing it, or you're doing it because somebody told you to do it, you're not going to last very long. You really have to figure out like deep down, like why you're doing it for yourself. Totally. I think uh, when Chris and I started making the show, we had, I had four months clean when we started and we talked about this idea of self-actualization, which is like having a dream and how helpful it is in your recovery. And I think that's what you're talking about. It's like believing in something meaningful for you. And it's, yeah, it's amazing. For sure. And then, so when did you guys start Dopey? 10 we years started, ago, No, we started it in 2015, which is seven and a half years ago, in the fall of 2015. That's awesome. So we're coming up here on our eighth yeah, really, year, you know, on our eighth year, on your eighth year. That's awesome. And I definitely want to get into that story because it's really fascinating and inspirational and sad, joyous, yeah. like all the things. But I want to go back, take me back to high school and talk about your experience where you were essentially like getting signed, I think with potentially with MTV and then you self-destructed. So what happened? When I went to high school in Manhattan, I went to elementary school and high school in the same spot. When I was four, I took a test to get into a school and I got into the school. And as many times as they asked me to leave the school, I didn't leave. And like, I wasn't a great student, but I had really good friends. And in your senior year of our school and just some notable graduates from my high school, young MC of Bust a Move fame, 
fucking Max Kellerman of ESPN first take fame, Bobby Lopez, who wrote Let It Go and all the music in Frozen, and Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote Hamilton. Wow. Right? And me from Dopey. So when you're a when you're a senior at our school, you have to get an internship. And and somehow I, we had a friend who whose father was a sound guy, and me and my friend Devin followed this kid, Alex, and he got an internship at MTV. So we got this internship at MTV. And that's kind of, I don't know, it was how I always was, but that's when the switch really got slipped for me. And not in terms of my addiction, but in terms of my like fame whoreness and wanting to be, I always wanted to have a talk show. So we got this internship and I was fucking driven for me and Devin to get on MTV. And we were in this office on like 57th Street and we worked on a high school magazine show called Like We Care. And the MTV main offices were at a place called 1515 Broadway, the Viacom headquarters. And they would send us down there to bring tapes down there and to pick shit up. And whenever we would go down there, we would like wander around and we would like, we met Kurt Loder Kurt Loder was like the MTV news guy. And like, he was always smoking weed and listening to the harder they come soundtracks. And we would try to meet people and get on MTV. And we did. We, we were funny and stupid and they bought it and they put us on MTV. And we did a thing with the hair metal band Slaughter. They did the big song Up All Night, Sleep All Day. But I think you're much younger than me. So you don't, you're not familiar with the great work of Slaughter. And we went to a record signing with them. We went to a weird toy show at the Javits Convention Center. And then they canceled the show. But right before they canceled the show, they went to me and Devin and they were like, we think you guys are going to be the future of MTV. And it's, I feel like it's a pipe dream now. Like Devin always says it to me. And I'm like, dude, it was bullshit. I'm sure they say it to anybody that is decent. But basically the show got canceled the show got canceled and we were interns for high school credit and we didn't sign off of, we're supposed to get like the supervisor at MTV to sign the form. And we didn't get, we didn't get him to sign the form. And I was just like, whatever, I'll forge it or Devin, I'll sign it or whatever. And we forged it and we got caught. And I had to, I didn't graduate with our class because of it. And, our, and the MTV career didn't pan out. I wound up going back to MTV years later and producing a special for them later. And at that point, I was fucking full-blown heroin addict shooting heroin. I, I thought, I really thought I had made it at that point because I was like producing a special that was like, it was like John Mayer and Nora Jones and it was hosted by Jason Schwartzman. And I'm like in a I have my own office in MTV and I'm like shooting heroin and looking out on the park. And I had, that was just right before I lost everything. But that was my MTV story, basically. Let's talk about the in-between. So how did it go from like you not graduating on time and getting in trouble with forging the signature? What happened after high school that led to your addiction to drugs? I think that's really interesting because I never put that together it started like MTV's sandwich of my personal misery, but it's interesting. After high school, I graduated that summer. I had I, I had to take like a summer school class, and it was it, it wound up being a very cool class. I wound up taking the history of film at Hunter College, which was a lot of fun. 
And I was not an alcoholic or a drug addict at that point. I wound up going to college and it was at college that I think my addiction really kicked in or started to really show itself. And I think maybe my addiction showed itself in codependency that I had this really tight group of friends in high school. And then when I left, I was totally alone. And I felt that classic addict feeling of fear, not fitting in totally on the outside because I didn't have these kids that I had been with since I was like four. And, and I was in, I played music in high school and I started a band in college and I was walking with this kid in college. His name was Zev. He was a cultural anthropology. Oh no, we met in cultural anthropology, but he was a jazz studies major. And of course he was a pothead. And me and him were hanging out, like studying for a cultural anthropology test. And, and he was like, do you want to get stoned? And I was like, okay. And because we were like, that's what college kids do. They get stoned before tests. And then you have to get stoned. Like you get stoned to study and then you have to get stoned before you take the test. So you remember. And I think the weed just really clicked with me. I was like, this is how I want to feel. And I, I literally smoke pot every day probably from then till I was 41. If I wasn't in treatment or whatever, I was smoking weed. And I wanted to be like uh, like the Beatles or something in my head. So like as soon as we were smoking pot, I was taking acid. I think I took acid before I ever smoked pot. And then we were taking whatever pills were around and I was smoking cigarettes. And I used mostly weed as a total crutch, as a total coping mechanism to deal with my uncomfortability. And eventually I wound up in Manhattan and I wound up getting another job in TV production at a different place. And I was making, I was like hosting stuff. I, it was really cool. I was hosting stuff and I was assisting, producing different stuff, like associate producing stuff and location scouting. And I had a friend move into my apartment who I had used to sold weed with in college. And I was like, you don't have to pay me rent. Just make sure that we have drugs. And he would, and we did. And he started delivering weed around Manhattan and he started scoring a bunch of Coke and we would do Coke. I never really liked Coke because I think I was so naturally like up that the Coke never hit me well, but I would do it anyway. And I was on a job for this company in Michigan at Michigan State University scouting out a talk show, a college cable talk show. And I came home and my friend who was living with me, his name was Todd. He was there and 10 people from my college were there. And, and there was, and our drug dealer was there and selling them all Coke. And I was like, mm. and I thought I was really savvy. And I was like, dude, what are you going to give us for making you all this money? And he was like, okay. And he takes out two bags of heroin and he throws them on the table. And I can remember like almost slow motion, the heroin going at it. And the kid was like 17. It was like fucked up. The dealer was like 17. All the kids at our house were like 24. The heroin hits the table. Everybody leaves. Me and Todd snort the dope and get super high. I think we, it was a Sunday night and we watched The Simpsons. And I was like, this is, I was like, this is how I want to feel. And I think I only felt better 
the next morning when I was still high, but it was like the sun was coming up and it was like fucking perfection for me. And as a neurotic Jewish person to have that feeling of tranquility, like there, it was just like, I, I wanted it. And I worked for this production company and I would, I was very careful to not get addicted to the heroin for a while until they gave me a deal. Like they gave me a three-year contract where I made a bunch of money. Looking back on it, it wasn't that much money, but in my head, it was a bunch of money. And I was like, I can afford doing heroin. And I just jumped in and I started, I was like, I'm not going to stop doing it. And I just started using every day. There's so much to unpack there. And you mentioned that you felt like you were nervous about fitting in at college. You talked about wanting to almost be like the Beatles. And I think a lot of people, like they want to emulate certain musicians that have done and abused drugs over the years. But what do you think it was like before that caused you to not like yourself or feel less than or feel like worried about fitting in? I don't know. There were probably a bunch of things. Like I, I think in high school, like I was a little overweight, but like looking back at pictures, I wasn't that overweight. Like it was like, it was like a fucked up body dysmorphia thing. And I think my mom like was a little bit critical of, of how I looked. My nose was really big. It still is. But I, I had, I, I, it wasn't a thing. I, I had girlfriends and I had friends and I think, I don't know. Like I really, I rarely really delve into this. I think I was so dependent on those friends. Uh, so I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't had those friends from when I was very little till I graduated high school. And I'm still friends with them. Like they, they're still my best friends, those guys. And if I hadn't had them, I think I would have acted out in different ways in high school. In high school, I stole, I would steal, but I did very little bad stuff. I didn't drink because the alcohol just didn't affect me properly. I don't have an answer except I had the classic kind of addict thing that once my friends were gone, I was was scared of not fitting in. I felt alone. Like I remember at night, I wouldn't really be able to sleep if I didn't have a friend sleeping over. I would get so caught up in weird thoughts and stuff. And so what was your relationship like, like with your parents? Like back then, you mentioned some stuff about your mom. Did they get along well? How did you interact with them? And how did you interact with them? My parents were the best of friends. Like they, they, they were incredibly tight. They were so impressed that I had gotten into that school. Like my mother used to tell me she would scrub the floors so I could go to Harvard. And, and once I was 14 or something, it was pretty clear I wasn't going to go to Harvard. Yeah. I was often failing Spanish and math. And I had, they when I said they asked me to leave that school, I, I think I got two notifications where they were like, maybe he would do better if he went to the school in his neighborhood. And, and my parents mentioned it to me and I was like, no, thanks. The school in my neighborhood was rough. You know, I grew up in, in Chelsea in Manhattan and the school in my neighborhood was called Humanities. And I don't know what would have happened to me if I had gone to humanities. I have no idea. Maybe I would have ruled humanities. I don't think so. Though. I think it would have gone badly. Right. Me and my parents got along. But I learned at that point 
had a lie because my mom was very controlling. My dad would do whatever she said because he was very smart. It was like happy wife, happy life. And, and I learned at a young age to lie about everything I did just because I didn't want to hear it from my mother. And like my friends would come home. Like I had have friends come over all the time and they learned what they would say is they learned very quickly not to answer any questions because they knew that I would come up with some fucking total bullshit story. And so like lying for me and stealing when I was a teenager, I never talk about this. I never even think about this. But when I was a teenager, I constantly lied constantly to my mother because I didn't want her to tell me what I should have been doing. And I was very defiant in this weird sort of way. I hated people telling me what to do, but it never came out so antisocially. It was really like undercover antisocial. And it's funny to think about it. Me and my mom didn't have a bad relationship. It wasn't acutely bad. I knew she loved me. I just felt judged. So like when I go over this kind of thing, it's was there an amount of love that I wasn't getting? All of my friends seem to have been doted on by their parents pretty hardcore. And I was not doted on. But I grew up in a nice home. You were at my dad's house. You met my dad. He's very sweet. He was pretty absent. He was like, he wasn't absent. We would go play basketball and he was very good at basketball and he was very good at school. And like, I never got better at anything. And I don't, part of me wants to blame him now, but I don't really have the best view of exactly what happened, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think things are, some dots, it seems, are starting to connecting a little bit because you mentioned your mom would say stuff to you about your weight. You mentioned that she would scrub the floors for you to go to Harvard. That's another like external like validation thing. You talked about your dad being absent. Do you think that a lot of your behavior growing up was because you don't, you didn't think you got like true valid, true, like authentic validation and love from either your mom or your dad. I constantly make fun of my father on dopey. And I constantly say I became a heroin addict because of them. And in reality, I had a really good childhood. They were very right. supportive. Like when I say my dad was absent, like he was a little absent-minded professory. Like he was watching football or basketball, but if I needed anything, they would do it. It's if I had a party to go to out at Staten Island, my dad would drive me there and fucking come and pick me up. Like they were incredibly attentive. I didn't feel like I was appreciated at the level that I wish I had been, but who knows? You know what I mean? I might've needed too much appreciation. I don't have a good sense of, of any of it, to be honest with you, Doug, if that's, if that answers the question, I don't have a feeling like I, I had a fucking great childhood compared to a lot of people. I would have loved it if my parents were like, Oh my God, David, you're so talented. You're so this, you're so that my mom would say shit to me. Like, because I didn't do great in school. I was at like this brilliant school and I was like a bullshit artist. Ferris Bueller was my fucking role model. And like my parents would go into parent teacher conferences and I would be like, oh, I played that teacher like a fucking Stradivarius. And the teacher would be like, David thinks he's playing us like a Stradivarius. So like for me to sit here and say it was one way or another, I think it was both ways. 
No, that all makes sense. And it's not to say that you didn't have a good childhood. I just think what happens sometimes, at least in my own experience and talking to other people, is that sometimes when we're not feeling, quote unquote, like loved or validated from our parents, we'll look for love in the wrong places. And you mentioned you, you cheated a little bit, you know, with the MTV thing, you forged the signatures, you end up, you're, you lied to not get caught. You ended up being the class clown, doing all these things to get attention, which may have felt good in the moment, but in reality, it was like the wrong form of attention. Dude, I think you should become a psychologist because you're putting shit together for me that I don't think was that <laughs> obvious. And I think that the number one thing about what you're saying, and Gabor Mate writes about it in his book, when people who are little don't go to their parents, but they go to their peers. And that's what I was. I needed my peer acceptance way more than my parents because my parents really didn't give a shit. They gave a shit if I failed out. They gave a shit if I was like on drugs or got arrested. But besides that, I grew up with a TV in my bedroom and I like kissed the TV before I went to bed at night. Like I, I would come home, I'd close the door, I'd put on TV. And I was like me and the TV, like the TV was my best friend. I had great friends, but I still know every TV theme song by heart. You know what I mean? Like I was fucking plugged in big time. Yeah. No, I appreciate the kind words and it, it all makes sense. But I think it also, you just, you see this a lot with people that, that struggle with their mental health and struggle with addiction to where, even though like you didn't have necessarily a quote unquote traumatic childhood, I think in moments where you're not getting certain validation for things that you do, or you're not getting certain validation for things you might achieve as a kid. You're only getting validation when things are bad. When you said when you fail out of school or you did something wrong, then that becomes like a pattern. And now you're like, oh, for me to get attention and love, I got to do something wrong. And I, that's where I, it seems like a lot of the behavior came from. I totally skated by. I, I got all of my good feelings from making people laugh at school among my friends. That was where all my validation came from. And then I liked, I like, I like joined a band and I loved mm. playing music. And I loved, I did theater, like I, I worked on crew and I built sets and I, I directed a play and I loved all that shit. And, but I do sometimes wish I had tried harder. I don't know. I get it. I act out. I didn't, nobody caught me. Like I was rarely caught. And when I did get caught, it, it was pretty bad. I think you're right. I think you're right. I'm with you, Doug. I think you should, have you considered psychology? Yeah, in another life, I think, but they don't accept psychologists who have two-year degrees. So I think I would need to go back to school for a little while to do I that. I don't know. I don't think it's a bad idea, but let's keep going. Let's keep going down this tour de force of my dysfunctional childhood. What else you got? Oh, <laughs> I want. I definitely want to get back to your story too and talk about we left off where you first started doing heroin and you were doing it recreationally. And then obviously, eventually it took a turn for the worse, but Getting back to like some generic things, we talked about some of the things that you've learned from your own story and talking to others on the podcast about what people can do for recovery. I've had many, I've had many experts on here. We've talked to, to people like Gabor Mate and I've had Anna Lampke and people who had, that really understand addiction. Talk about why people do drugs. So based on what you've heard from the listeners of your show, you have a ton of people that write to you all the time about their addiction stories. What do you think is like a couple of the common things you hear? It's funny. It's like, I, I never, I personally, in my belief about it, I don't look at the why that much. It's not my thing. Like I went to treatment many times 
And I think as we sit here and run it through a strainer, we can see the remnants of these things that probably very well contributed to the why. I'm more about what happened and what was crazy about it. And then how are you living now? So, but I think the why is like broken home, not getting enough love, dysfunction. What were your outlets? What was your economic standing? Like, what was your education? Like, I think most, but most of our listeners that I hear from and most of the people who are on the show, like they came from someplace where they didn't get enough love. And they wound up feeling the good feeling of alcohol or drugs and being like, I like this more than I like that. And they go with it. And then the roller coaster begins. So I think it's, they needed something they didn't get is the overwhelming why. Yeah, totally makes sense. And I've definitely heard that a lot as well. So let's go back to your story. So you were with this guy, Todd, at your apartment in Manhattan, people were over. There's a bag of heroin on the table. You snort it. You realize this is how you want to feel for the rest of your life. Where does that take you? I had signed a three-year deal with this company called Burley Bear Network that was owned by Broadway Video, who's like Lauren Michaels, Saturday Night Live. And I think I made it to the second year of the three-year contract. You know what I mean? I think first year I was interviewing rock stars like KRS-One, fucking Pavement, Flaming Lips, Beanie Man, like Ween, whatever. It was like, it was a dream come true for me to be interviewing rock stars and hip hop stars. Like I talked to EPMD and just all these people that meant something to me. And I felt, and all the interviews were horrible. Every interview I did in that period was horrible. And, and I felt like I was the shit. I felt like I was getting paid a lot of money. I was young. I was acting like an idiot in front of the camera and I was high. I was like, this is the ultimate thing because I cared so deeply about everything that I needed to do as many drugs as I could. My show went to total shit and I became totally physically addicted to heroin. And I was only paying $300 a month for, I I was, you see where my dad lives in public housing in New York and it's very cheap. And my mother put me on the list for an apartment when I was 11. And I got the apartment when I was 22. And it was a giant studio apartment that I paid $300 a month for. And I couldn't even afford that. And I was making $100,000 a year at this production company. And I couldn't afford the $300 a month because I was snorting all the heroin at the time before I ever started shooting. And at the end... What year was this? That was 99, 2000. Okay. And I wound up breaching my contract with that company. And, but basically I had the choice of either going to the company or going to my parents and saying, I'm addicted to heroin. I need to go to treatment. And for whatever reason, I didn't go to either. I just checked into a free detox at Beth Israel Hospital on 14th Street. And my parents found out. And then my job found out. And because I didn't show up to work and I didn't tell them, they fired me for breach of contract. If I had gone to them, they would have had to send me to a nice rehab, but I was too stupid and strung out. And that's when my life got really bad. It it just was incrementally worse and worse. It was around then that I started doing methadone. I was unemployed for a while. And then I went back to MTV because I had known 
when I was in high school, I had known this guy. His name was Alex Coletti. He started MTV Unplugged. He's like a genius. He did a ton of award shows. And he was really nice to me when I was a kid. And I wrote him or I called him and he was like, yeah, come in. And he hired me to do that special I was telling you about. And by that point, I had been to actual rehab. I had learned how to shoot heroin and I was shooting heroin. And I got hired to do a special for them. It was horrible, the special I made for them. And they aired it. Then they fired me. I sold, I, as I was leaving MTV, I stole every CD on every desk because all you get is free CDs when you work at MTV. And I stole, shop, I left MTV with five shopping bags of CDs and I went and I sold them all and bought heroin. And after that, I was on unemployment for another year and my parents were like, you got to go to fucking real rehab. And they got me a scholarship to a rehab in Florida. And I went to Florida and my parents stopped paying my $300 a month. So I was, now I was extradited. I was gone. I was pushed out of New York City and I was like in Florida. And that's when I really became that's when the real free fall, that's when the actual you're an addict and you're not going to be taken care of. And let's see what you do now really started. And I was probably like 26 at that point. Do you think that a lot of, a lot of this subconsciously, you were just self-sabotaging because you just knew things were going to, you were going to fail anyway. And like you talked about in high school, you forged the signature and that ended up causing something with MTV and then the production company. And then you mentioned how you behaved in, in college and you talked about what happened at MTV where you stole stuff and you just really didn't put the effort in. Did you just think you were destined to fail? I don't think so. And if I did, it was subconscious. I really, what I like to believe is that I thought I could get out of anything. I thought I could talk my way out of anything. I thought I could sneak my way out of anything, lie my way out of anything. And I think without heroin, I could. But right. once I was on heroin and benzos at that point, I was taking a ton of Xanax and Clonopin. I couldn't, I could lie myself out of a paper bag, but I would lie myself into another one. You know what I mean? It was total, I couldn't keep up with the lies. And I was just such a fucking disaster. I was either nodding out or throwing up, being late, looking like a mess, filthy. I couldn't pull off. I was like a really good manipulator, like most drug addicts are. And I was a really good bullshitter, like most drug addicts are. But once you're addicted to heroin and benzos, it's very easy to see through it. And I didn't realize how transparent I was at that point. I don't think right. I, I don't think it was like, and maybe your point is a hundred percent and I'm still in denial of that period then. But I don't think, I always thought I would succeed because I'm also yeah. that crazy addict cliche of, yes, I'm a piece of shit, but I'm the piece of shit in the center of the universe kind of thing. You know what I mean? I'm the, what is it? The, oh God, what is it? The something with the inferiority complex, the egomaniac, yeah, the about. egomaniac with the inferiority mm. complex. Like that always thought I would pull it off. I always thought that I would pull it off and I failed and failed. But in the back of my head, I always thought I was going to pull it off. I don't think I, I don't think I thought I was going to fail. This is my, is the yeah. short answer to the question. And I think the other theme that I'm hearing is that it seems that when you were a kid, you had to lie and BS your way to get like the proper attention from your parents, right? Because 
you were like afraid, specifically your mom, you were afraid of what she would say if you did something. So you would lie to make sure that certain things added up, correct? And that just became a pattern? I wasn't as good at school as the other kids in my school, but I was better with people than them. I didn't have the same ability to do any like reading and interpreting information or doing math or learning foreign languages or understanding science. But I really had a great grasp of people. And I used that as my way through everything. And I think I got away. I think I tried to get away with shit all over the place. And I, I don't know, like I never put it together. That was how I sought attention. I think it was how I survived. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense because you have to do what you need to do to survive. And it just seems you found your way and it served you today because you're tenacious, you hustle, you're good with people. And it's what's made you successful in the podcast world as well. And I want to go back to your story. So you're in Florida, your parents have written you off. You went down there to go to rehab. And now you're doing benzos, you're doing heroin, you're doing a whole concoction of things. What's the day-to-day like, like for you there? And what was, how were you surviving? Where were you living? And then how did that ultimately lead you to getting sober? I was in Florida for a year and I wasn't using, I was in, in treatment and I, I got kicked out of treatment for hooking up with girls in treatment. And then I like, I did maybe 11 months in Delray beach, Florida and I real and like I was like confronted as the most toxic person in the rehab. Like it was fucked up. And and all and I worked at a furniture moving company and all I wanted to do was get back to my life. And I relapsed on weed. I started smoking pot down there and I got away with it. And then I left. And I but my parents wouldn't let me come back to New York. I had lost my rent control department and I moved to California. Because my that kid, Todd, who I lived with, was living in California with a fr- another friend that I had grown up with. And I moved into their house and they were like, we got to make sure Dave doesn't relapse on heroin. But Todd had started doing crystal meth. And I was like, I'll do that. And I started doing crystal meth with Todd. I think I made it a few weeks before fucking... I was seeking downers. I didn't respond well to crystal math. And and we went to Mexico. We bought a shitload of pills. I had a girlfriend who moved out there to be with me. And very soon after that, I was working on a TV show out there. And I was working near downtown LA. And I was smoking Marlboros. And some homeless guy comes up to me. And he looked high as shit. And he's like, hey, can I get a cigarette? And I was like, I'll give you two if you tell me where I could get heroin around here. And he's, yeah, right across the street. It was like open air drug market and I didn't realize it. And I give him the two cigarettes and then bam, I fuck. I, I got so addicted in Los Angeles to heroin and pills. It was insanity. I basically, and I moved in with my girlfriend. I lived there for six or seven years. I joined a methadone clinic. I got up to 150 milligrams of methadone. I gained probably... 50 pounds, like I didn't work. And all I would do is heroin, pills, and methadone. And and that was all I did for five years. Nothing else. And, what year was this? What time frame was this? Uh, that was like 2002 to 2007. 
And I was a fucking disaster. I didn't had a couple jobs, but they were bullshit jobs. Like famously, I got a job working at kids' parties and I would do it high. I had to blow up balloon animals. They would have me wear like the Mighty Morphin Power Ranger suit and I was all fat and disgusting. And, and then they had me dress up as Big Bird, but they give you this Big Bird costume with this matted feathers and googly eyes. Like, like it's this bullshit off-brand Big Bird outfit and they don't give you tights. So I'm fucking high on heroin, hairy legs, Big Bird body, Big Bird feet, white, pasty, hairy legs in between. Fucking, I, I would go to parties late, high, reeking of cigarettes. It was really bad. And on methadone, like even if I had no money, I would spend whatever money I had on drugs before I would get the methadone. And I, I didn't know what the hell I was going to do, to be honest with you. I, I thought I was totally fucked. And I got a call from my mother and she had been diagnosed with leukemia. And she told me that she thought she was going to die soon, right? And this is out of nowhere. She was a healthy 64-year-old woman. And I was like, I can't have her die with me out here like this. I can't have, I can't live with that. I was like, I can't live with that being my story. So I went to the methadone clinic and I was like, I got to get off methadone. They put me on a blind taper. I tapered off of 150 milligrams for probably 10 months, some crazy amount of time. I got down to 30. I went to treatment. I relapsed a bunch of times and me and my girlfriend moved back east. We moved to Vermont. My parents had a house upstate and I would see them on the weekend and I had gotten off of heroin and methadone. I still smoke pot. She died that fall and, and I was smoking weed, but I wasn't sober. I moved back to the city. I broke up with the girlfriend because I was just such a destructive toxic kind of thing because I had been strung out the whole time. And, and that's when I started working at Katz's. And I was like, it was really weird. I had worked at Katz's Deli when I was in high school and in college. And my, I was like, and I hadn't lived in my parents' apartment since I was in high school. And I was 35. And I was like, mom, can I move back home? And she's only if you get it, if you're working. And I, so I called up Katz's and they let me come back. And I think I lived in their house for a month. I didn't even live with them for the second they came back from upstate. I left because I couldn't live. It's too small of an apartment to live with them. And, all, and also all of the psychological damage that you've uncovered in this interview, I had to leave. And I went and I lived at my friend's mom's house. And then my mother died. And, and right after that, I started dating this woman and she got pregnant. And, and then I relapsed on heroin. It's a lot to unpack, Doug. I know. So it's a deep, crazy story. My first question is, you mentioned how you continue to get these production jobs or pro jobs in film doing this stuff. Like, how did you get that? How did you get another job doing that in California, given your horrific track record? They fired you for breach of contract. The one production company, you stole the CDs and like, and then you, yeah, like, did you not like yeah, report? Yeah. Did you not write down any of that on the resume? No, of course <laughs> yeah. not. Of course, I didn't write. I just wrote down like producer, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, location scout, producer. I wasn't going to write breach of contract, yeah. stolen goods. They didn't call, but they didn't call them as like a reference to see how you were. No. Mate, I don't okay. know. I don't gotcha. know. I've never found out. 
when I got to LA, I, I, I got a job as an associate producer for this bullshit TV show called Nine on the Town. And I did that job fucking high. Like I was fucking high, like as high as I've ever been. I remember it's like one of my most glorious war stories. They had a bathroom like I was so fucked up. They had a bathroom off of the production room. And I thought I was such an egomaniac, crazy person. They had a bathroom in there and they had like drawers in the sink. And I took the middle drawer and I put comics in there because I would always like like go to the bathroom and take a shit and read comics because I'm a fucking idiot. And I had a tissue box in that same drawer. And in the tissue box, I had a tourniquet, used needles, fucking cookers. And I would just shoot heroin in the bathroom. I would cook the heroin in the bathroom. I would shoot heroin. It was like a fucking... And I would shoot meth in there too. I was so crazy at that job. I had that job for maybe six months. And I remember like the woman calls me in to fire me and she's, you can't work here anymore. And I was like, why? It's it's obvious you have a horrible problem. And I was like, no, I was just lying. I was like, no, I just can't sleep. And she's, that's because you're on meth. We can smell it. We can smell you cooking the meth. And it was bad. Like, but I mean, like when, when I tell you the story, it sounds like I was working way more than I was. I got that one job in California and I didn't work again there for five years. Yeah. Nothing. All I did was live off my girlfriend, find quarters in the couch, wander down the hill, buy an ice cream sandwich, come back up, find another 50. All I did was eat ice cream sandwiches, shoot dope, drink methadone, and take out-of-focus pictures of flowers. That was all I did. And watch TV, like watch Lost and shit. I was like a fucking disaster. I was not some hustling... TV working production guy. I was a total waste of life. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, wanted to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Just Thrive. I have covered the topic of gut health extensively on the show and why it is so important to have a healthy microbiome. 80 to 90% of Americans suffer from some type of gut issue and 70 to 80% of your immune system is in the gut. And while cleaning up your diet and managing your stress should be at the foundation of addressing your gut health, a probiotic can certainly be very beneficial. When buying a probiotic, you want to be sure that you get one that actually works and delivers on their promises. Research shows that 99.9% of them die in your stomach acid before they reach your gut. That's where Just Thrive Probiotics stands out from the crowd. Their proprietary strains have been third-party clinically tested and proven to arrive 100% alive in your gut, unlike other probiotics that die on the way. But that's not all. Their probiotics have more clinical research than any other products on the market and are proven to work. So if you are tired of struggling with gut issues like gas, bloating, and indigestion, look no further than Just Thrive Probiotics. So for a limited time, you can get 20% off your first 90-day bottle of Just Thrive Probiotic. So visit JustThriveHealth.com and use promo code Doug to get 20% off. Again, it's JustThriveHealth.com and use promo code Doug to get 20% off. Now back to the show. Where was your mindset at, like in the midst of all of this, like in the time where you're living in California and then you're transitioning back to New York to be there for your mom? Like, did you actually want to get sober? Did you believe you could get sober or did you just think that you were going to end up being an addict for the rest of your life? I didn't, I don't really know the answer to that question. I don't think, I don't think I ever thought I was going to be an addict for the rest of my life. I wanted to be though. 
I wanted, I remember I'd always be like, I wish I just had enough money and I could just stay high forever, which is every addict thinks that. And I also had this thing, if I could just get sober, if I could, and I would say, if I could make it to 60 or somehow in my head, I was so grandiose. I was like, if I could just make $60 million or when I make $60 million, I could be totally a junkie. Like it was always a temporary thing in my head, but sobriety didn't exist. I was so addicted. Forget heroin and benzos. I, I was so addicted to heroin and benzos. I had 20 seizures at that wow. point. Like I, I was having like crazy seizures, like hospitalization seizures over and over again. I was hospitalized like five times from seizures in bad places. Like I had a seizure on a plane. They had to take me off the plane. I had seizures in treatment. I had, I just had, I had seizures doing community service in California. Like I had seizures all over the place just because I was so addicted to the benzos. So no, I didn't think I was ever going to get sober, but I also didn't think I was going to be a drug addict for the rest of my, my life. I think I still had that grandiosity to think that I was going to make it out. And when my mom got sick, I wasn't like, I'm going to get sober. I was just like, I got to stop doing heroin. I got I really need to stop doing methadone. And I need to stop taking pills because I knew the pills were why I was having the seizures. So I just figured I, I wanted to get back to being a stoner. I was not interested in sobriety. Gotcha. And, and I, that, that's what I wanted when I left California. Right. And as we all know, that's just as much as people want that, it's just not reality because your life, no matter what, your life will end eventually just destruct. There'll be a path of destruction no matter what, if you continue to use an exorbitant amount of, amount of drugs, despite no matter how much money you have. Yeah. It's because like the drugs stopped working. So I wound up relapsing on my mother, like my mom died. We, my, my girlfriend got pregnant and, and I was hanging out with Todd again. He moved back from California years before I did because he couldn't handle it at all. We actually drove back together. We got arrested probably five times. We got picked up five times or something driving back every time. Like Todd had like a pound of weed in the car and every time the cops would just find a little bit. It was so fucking horrible. Every, and also for some reason it was like AMC it was like, you know how like AMC like would do a week where they just show Rocky movies. Yeah. Like they'd show Rocky and then Rocky two. And then so every day we would stop somewhere. We would watch the next Rocky movie and we would get bust. It was like we were in the hotel and in the car. And it was, we. by the time we got to Buffalo, New York, we were out of weed. And Todd was so upset at me. We smoked our last joint in Buffalo. And, and then I went back to California and Todd established himself in New York. So I came back five years later. Todd wasn't on heroin. He would do coke once in a while. He would do heroin once in a while, but he wasn't totally addicted. But me and Todd were not good for each other. And when I came back, he was like, he would always challenge me and he would be like, I bet you can't find dope now. And like, we didn't have any connects or anything. And I would be like, I could get dope anywhere, anytime. And he'd be like, prove it. And I would go out and get dope. And then he started using and I wouldn't. And then Linda got pregnant and Todd showed up at our house with heroin. And I think the pressure of expecting this kid working in a deli full-time that I just succumbed. I succumbed. I don't know if that's a word. I managed to wind up back on heroin. We had the baby. My, my partner found out I was on heroin and she left me. 
And and that's when hell really descended. Like all these bottoms were nothing compared to that bottom because I had a kid. I was a total failure. I was totally addicted to heroin. I was doing probably $300 worth a day at that point. I was alone. I was estranged from the family. I was waiting tables and managing cats's just fucking loser time. And that's when I went to treatment and I met Chris, who I started Dopey with. Let's get, go back to that in a second. I want to I want to unpack something. So you mentioned that you spent a lot of time with Todd knowing that he wasn't good for you. Why do you think that just despite the fact that you knew this person wasn't good for your best interest, you continued to like almost like cling to him, almost like a brother, even though knew it would lead to debauchery? Because uh, I, I wanted the debauchery. I love Todd. Todd was like one of the most fun people anyone could ever meet. He was ridiculously enthusiastic. He was like me. We loved like hippie culture. We loved TV. We loved doing stupid shit, getting away with shit, stealing, getting high. Like we were idiots. He was like the lowest version of myself and I would descend to an even lower version of him. Like we, we were like that for each other. And I think it was addictive. It was seductive in this way. It was not like, I wasn't looking to do the next right thing. You know what I mean? I, I, we were like pigs and shit and we were miserable half the time too. And we, and I think what you described is a great way to describe it. We definitely clung to each other like brothers. And I think I couldn't handle loneliness. I think that's what we talked about. Like when I was in high school with my friends, I could not handle being by myself. And Todd always just thought I was worse than him. So I was like a good comparison for him. And I needed someone to be next to me all the time, or I felt totally empty. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause it seems like you said you had some codependency issues with people where you needed to have people around you 100%. to feel validated. And, and I think sometimes when you come up and you don't have a close relationship with your family, because we are wired for human connection, you will find human connection, whether it's whether people are good for you or not, because like it's a biological need is people. You need to be around people. Yeah. Yeah. Loneliness and fear of being alone definitely drove a lot of what I yeah. did. Makes sense. All right, let's go back to the story. So you're working at you're working at Katz's. You meet your now partner. You guys have a kid together. You're strung out on heroin. She bad. bad. She leaves you. What's going through your mind as that all went down? What was your mental health like? What were your thoughts like? And then how did you end up finally going to to treatment? It's like it never was as bad as that. And I guess that's probably the truth for anybody's story when they get to the end of the line. But, and I wasn't even at the end of the line, but I was basically at the end of the line for heroin addiction. And, and holy cow, those days were fucking bad because I had more money than I had ever had at that point. And I could afford doing as much dope as I wanted. I just felt, I just felt worthless. I felt, like whatever loser I imagined that I might be, I was a hundred times worse because now there was a child and there was a child and my mother was dead. My father was in so much pain because my mother was gone. And I had this beautiful baby girl 
that my father loved so much and he was in so much pain and then his son can't get his fucking shit together. And I just felt it all. I felt so low, like such a loser. So it was so painful. And I used to get through it. And I remember it was bad. I remember I went out drinking. I didn't drink. I went out drinking one night on the Lower East Side to try to pick up a girl or something. <laughs> like I, that was in my head. And I, nobody would talk to me. I was so fucked up. And I remember I was walking home from the bar and I literally walked into a wall, broke my nose, got a black eye, broke my nose, went out to see my daughter and her mother was just like, because they left, they moved to Long Island and I moved to the Lower East Side. And she was like, you're fucked. And I was like, and I knew it. At that point, I was like so strung out, broken nose, black eye. Oh, and I had gotten fired from Katz's. I forgot about that. I got fired from Katz's because I was so high at work. I was nodding out. I was eating food off the customer's table. Literally, I was a fucking nightmare. And, and I lost the gig. I got fired. I broke my nose, black eye told Linda, she was like, you got to go to treatment. I went and I talked to my cousin who was owning Katz's and I was like, please, if I go to treatment, can I please come back and work? And he was like, you can come back and work, but you're never going to manage the store again. That's over. You can come back and you can wait tables. It was like the curse of Katz's kind of thing. And I, and I went to Mountainside. I, I remember I went to a detox in Connecticut and nobody would talk to me because I, I like, black eye, broken nose. I went, I shot heroin and took pills on the ride up there. So I got there just like people in detox who are like, you can't talk to them because they're just like ruined. I was as ruined as I've ever been when I walked into that place. And at Mountainside, I met Chris, who I started dopey with, but I didn't even get sober after that. I got home I found I had new needle needles at home and I was like, I can't have new needles and not use. So I relapsed again. And then I start, I put a year together to get back custody of my daughter. And, and I got to see my daughter on the weekends without my dad. And then I think Hurricane Katrina or Sandy, one of these hurricanes happened and I started smoking weed again. And, and I got sober after that. But that's the way it happened. If that makes any sense. No, it does make sense. So you, you end up going to treatment, you meet Chris you end up getting out of treatment and then scraping up some time together. And then you end up getting back into smoking weed after Hurricane Katrina happens. And then you finally end up like getting sober. But the sober thing at the end, right? After, during the whole time, like after we had our daughter, I was so miserable that we were separated and that I was separated from our daughter and that we could have this beautiful family. And I was the thing standing in the way of it. And I was obsessed with this idea of a family. And, and Linda, my partner, was like, no way. You fucked up. I can't trust you. She's I'm not interested. And then I had gotten the year together. She needed hair tests of a year sober to be with me or to have me see our daughter. And I got the year I think I had a few drinks, like I was dating, like she was seeing people, I was seeing people. And if I went on dates, I would drink because I didn't know how to operate otherwise. And I wound up dating this woman. Linda was in a relationship with someone else. And I wound up smoking pot 
And I didn't tell Linda, but the whole time, and it's not that romantic a story when I'm actually honest about what happened, but the whole time, all I really wanted was to be with Linda and our kid. And I wound up breaking it off with this woman. And that's also when I started getting into my dream and my dream was having a talk show. So I started doing a talk show at Katz's called The Last Jewish Waiter. And it's about this waiter who wants to have a talk show uh, and he hates waiting tables. So he does the talk show while he waits tables. And like people liked it. And Linda was impressed that I was doing something. And I was constantly like, can we please get back together? Can we please, can you stop seeing this guy and get back together with me? And we could have a family and this and that. And then over the summer, she was like, okay, we can try. And we like went out. We went on a trip to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And she, she has, she took Xanax to help her sleep. And I wound up stealing the Xanax from her and she got really pissed. And then she gave me another chance. But by the time she gave me the other chance, some guy who I worked with was selling Clonopins and I started taking Clonopins and she caught me again. And she was like, this isn't happening. You're losing custody. And I had my own version of a spiritual awakening, which was It was in August of 2015. I was sitting on Grand Street, chain smoking Barbaros and writing an email to her, begging her to let me smoke pot, that I could be a good father. I could be a good partner. I could, it could work out if I could just smoke pot. And something happened where I looked at myself and I was like, what the am I doing? Begging to smoke pot. I was 41, had failed over and over and over again. What if I just tried to actually do it without the pot? And the next morning I went to a 12-step meeting and there was a kid at the 12-step meeting who was 28. He was super handsome and fit. He had like tattoo sleeves on his arms and he was celebrating 10 years. I was like, this is the most annoying fucking guy I've ever seen. I, I didn't have a day. He had 10 years and he was 28 and had his shit together. And I think I went up to him to complain to him, to tell him how annoying I was that he was doing so well. And he was super nice. And he was like, oh, so is today going to be your first day then? And I was like, maybe it is. (laughs) And I went home and I I called my best friend and I gave the guy from the MTV story. I gave him all the pot and, and he took all my pot out of my house and I got sober. That was it. Dang got sober and that was it. It wasn't just it because I know there's had to have been, there's been a lot of work that I'm sure you've had to do. What was the, what's the healing process been like for you to work on a lot of the stuff that you've gone through, you had gone through before that time and also to unlearn some of these unhealthy behaviors? I was so obsessed. I wasn't obsessed with weed at that point and I wasn't obsessed with heroin and I wasn't obsessed with pills. I was obsessed with Linda And I was obsessed with our daughter and I was obsessed with how I could have fucked this thing up. I, I, you couldn't have a conversation with me in that period of time without me lamenting everything I had done. Nobody wanted to talk to me. And I went to that 12 step meeting and I remembered the phrase. The phrase was the, if you do this, the obsession to use will be lifted. And I just wanted the obsession to my failure to be lifted. Mm. So, and I had never worked a real program. I had done, I had tried, I had gotten 
gotten a little bit of time together. I had done a few steps. I never worked the 12 steps. I never felt sober. I never felt rigorously honest. I never felt good. I always was pining away to get high. And when I went to those meetings, those first couple times, I heard somebody read this piece of literature called How It Works, where they say, rarely have we seen a person uh, fail who thoroughly followed our path. And I had never followed anything. All I had followed was using and lying and cheating and stealing and bullshitting. And I was like, I want to fucking, I want these results. And I remember I'm sitting in a fucking 12 step meeting on Houston street and I was 41 and I was the best I had ever been. I had a waiter job. I had a sublet apartment and this was the best I had ever been since I was a kid. But when I was a kid, I was a kid. I was like, this is what using gives me at 41. I was like, that's pro if I'm lucky, I'll live to be 82. If that's half my life just using, what would half my life being sober bring me? Was my thought. And I was also like, I know I'm never going to get as high as I was. I know I've gotten as high as I'll ever be. So what if I tried this? So I fucking got a sponsor and I did the steps and I, I did everything that was suggested. I went to 90 meetings in 90 days. I fucking dotted my I's. I crossed my T's. I did not do anything that wasn't suggested. And I became a cult member and it totally worked. That's amazing, man. Congrats to you on that. How did you, what was the process like for you to overcome the feeling of being a failure? It was strictly, I met a few guys in recovery. I chilled with them. I fucking hung out with them every day. They felt like failures too. I talked to people who had been through what I had been through. I also talked to Chris. Chris had two years sober at that point, And he loved The Last Jewish Waiter. And he loved the attention that I had gotten from doing The Last Jewish Waiter. And he was like, I want to do something like that. And I was like, and I had another friend who was like, you should do a podcast about drug stories. And I was like, we should do a podcast about drug stories. And he's like, what's a podcast? And I was like, I have no idea. And he's like, how do we do it? And I, I was a musician, so I knew how to record music onto my computer. And I was like, just come over and we'll record. I had three months sober, four months sober, three months sober when we started talking about doing Dopey. The first episode we did, I had four months sober. And that was a huge, it wasn't like, people always ask Dopey's place in my recovery. I don't know. But I know that Dopey was was a good time. It was what I wanted to do. Like making the show was exactly what I wanted to do. It was this opportunity. And me and Chris had so much fun. I know you guys did it for a few years together. Walk the audience through, was it 2000, around 2018 or so, 2019? With yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was, I think it was, uh, let's see, it was, I think it was 2018, but I always up the years because my brain is addled from drug use. Basically, he, he relapsed. He, he injured his leg. He relapsed. He, I think he probably did Percocets. And as soon as he did Percocets, all bets were off and he was doing Coke and fentanyl and he overdosed and he died. But before he died, Todd died. Todd died five weeks before Chris died, and I was broken. When Todd died, I was 
I still, I want to cry every time I think about what happened to him. He never got it together. He never got any recovery. He died. Five weeks later, Chris was dead. And I could not believe it. And his girlfriend had found his body. And I didn't even believe it was true. And I was, I could quit making the show or I could not quit making the show. I didn't really consider not making the show. I loved making the show. It was all I really wanted to do. So I kept making the show. We had an audience before Chris died, but after Chris died, I, we were featured on This American Life and the show got much bigger. It's really sad that it took that for the show to get bigger. And I, I can't imagine how hard that all must have been for you. Like, how did you keep it all together for your partner and your kid, your own sobriety during that time? It was crazy because also Linda had gotten pregnant again. So basically in 2018, in May of 2018, we had our second daughter. We moved into our first house and in June, Todd died. And in July, Chris died. It's like crazy. crazy. But I think having a baby, it's like, I couldn't really stop. I couldn't stop working. I couldn't stop my recovery. I actually, I re- galvanized my recovery because I was in so much pain from his loss. And I just doubled down, tripled down on program, doubled down, tripled down on work. Family required much more effort. Mm. It was a crazy thing. And it's a miracle that it worked out. And it's only because I've stuck to a recovery program. And it's also like, all of the bullshit about my ego maniacal ways when I was a kid, like turned into this and it's whatever, like our show is not a big podcast, but it's successful. It makes me a little bit of money. It helps a bunch of people. We have an audience that really likes it and it makes me feel good. And I love doing it. It's in the end, it's all worked out and I'm almost right sized about the whole thing. Yeah. Congrats to you for keeping it all together despite all the tragedy that you went through during that time and all the pressure from being a dad, having a partner, and then having another kid. Like I'm sure that had to all be incredibly tough. I'm interested to hear though, like what have you done in your recovery that's got you comfortable with just David Mannheim yourself? Because you've mentioned this obsession with being around other people. You've talked about this fear of being alone. What have you done to be com what have you done through the years to actually be comfortable with yourself? I think I've reproduced. So I have two people that need to be with me. <laughs> so that helps. Yeah. No, I think doing the, this, my step work, I think, uh, having a program, I think trying to do the next right thing, trying to be of service, trying to stay out of my head and be more other centered has been helpful. But to be honest with you, like I'm still codependent. I'm still crazy. I'm not perfect. I had a sponsor when I was in narcotics anonymous who said, he was very smart. He said, you're not going to be a saint. This is not something that's going to turn you into a saint. It's a bridge back to life. And then you're going to have problems like everybody else. And I have problems like everybody else. I have desires like everybody else. I don't use. I don't use. And I try to triple down on my program to keep me doing the next right thing. So with, with as far as the podcast, I know you've had some pretty incredible guests on the show. You've met some amazing people at Katz's. Who's been like the one person that people may recognize that's been the most meaningful, that's had the most meaning, meaningful conversation with you? The most recognizable person is probably Jamie Lee Curtis. 
And that was a total fluke. She was at Katz's buying a Kanish for her husband. And I like went crazy to get her to come on the show. She wouldn't come on the show until after Chris died when she found out the show was a comedy. She was like, no, I don't want to do a comedy about addiction. She was the most notable person. I've had a lot of great conversations with addicts, both famous and not famous. Mark Marin was, was a very gratifying one because I really admired his work. And, and I got to know him a little bit better. And he came on to our show twice. And I got to go on his show, which was incredible to me. But the second time he came on Dopey, he shared about the loss of his girlfriend, like who, who died during COVID. And he was very vulnerable. And that was very meaningful to me. I had a, an episode that not many people listen to, but there's this hip hop guy called Nems, Gorilla Nems from Brooklyn. He's like an Instagram guy now. He's, he, he does this whole bit. He's don't disrespect me. Like, he like disses people on the street. But he like had a crazy story and I just felt super connected to him. Yesterday, I interviewed Andre Royo who played Bubbles on The Wire. Ooh. And it fucking, it blew my brains out of my head. It was just fucking... Like I lived for the wire. I yeah, like yeah. used and watched the wire. I got sober and watched the wire. I relapsed and watched the wire. That shit is like scripture in my soul. And it was like a really cool connection. So that was great. That's incredible, man. The wire is not far from me and I've definitely watched it a bunch of times. Right? It's cool. You had bubbles on. I wanted to get Omar on. I'd actually been in conversation with his Michael K. Williams team shortly before he had uh, passed and we just never was ne ne yeah. never able to get it set up yeah i wanted that one too real bad him and david crosby man like when david crosby died i was like oh god that was david crosby blocked me on twitter famously and wow. i just fucking because i would always tweet at him like who's the worst crackhead you or rick james and did you do more dope than james taylor i would just tweet stupid things at him and he blocked me and i always had hope that he would come on eventually and he never did <laughs> Yeah, man. It's it's sad, though, when people's lives get taken too soon. And I think that's why we keep doing what we're doing. I know that's a big inspiration for you with Dopey and why you continue to show up every week and produce a great episode and interview people and do the work that you're doing. So I guess my last question is, what's next for you? I know you're going to continue with Dopey. You're still doing stuff at Katz's. Where do you see yourself in the next few years? Who knows? I personally believe in Dopey. I, believe, I think I'm good at this. I don't want to sound crazy. I think I do good interviews. I think Dopey is an entertaining show. So Time Magazine is working on a documentary series about us. I've had so many near run-ins with actual fame that haven't happened that I'm not really banking on this thing to do anything. Hopefully we'll get better guests and Robert Downey Jr. will be on and shit and fucking I'll be chilling with with Flavor Flav and whatever. Have you found yourself like ch in chasing after these celebrities to come on the show that becomes like an addiction in itself sometimes? It's it's I think it's more of an exercise in like self-esteem, like losing self-esteem, gaining self-esteem in places that aren't necessarily esteemable. One of the most okay. It's incredibly satisfying to actually get a guest, right? But what I find to be almost equally satisfying is to give up. For example, Courtney Love. I've been chasing Courtney Love for years, and she used to talk to me once in a while. 
But then like she stopped talking to me and I kept texting her. It's I sound like such a loser. But the other day I finally, I just was like, accept that I'm not going to get her. And I unfollowed her and I'm like, I'm done. I'm through. It's over. And so, yes, I have spent a lot of time chasing celebrities to come on Dopey. And sometimes it's addictive and it definitely fucks with my self-esteem, both positively and negatively. 100%. Yeah, I'm sure it's like the chase in that sometimes you, what's more, what feels better is like the chase of getting the celeb, like the process of getting the celebrity. And then once you get them and you interview them, like sometimes it's, it was a good interview. It was a great interview, but it wasn't worth the stress. Like you really, you don't know. Totally. But it's just like chasing the drugs. Right. It was totally like, if I couldn't get, like I like when Todd was like, you can't score. And I'd be like, yes, I can. That's what this is. It's And it's also like, how can I prove that I'm good enough to get a person to make this happen, to make that happen? And really, a show is just as good with somebody who's just honest and compelling and funny and has a great story as a celebrity who sucks. You know what I'm saying? Not every celebrity is going to be great. Not every celebrity is going to get you listeners, but it is some weird fucking inferiority complex that makes me think I need validation by getting said famous person. So it's interesting. It's another way to be okay with being myself. Right, right. That all totally makes sense. Dave, this has been awesome. Thank you again for coming on and being vulnerable and open and honest and sharing your story. If people want to follow along with the podcast, if they want to follow you on social media, where's the best place to do that? Wherever you listen to podcasts, just write in Dopey. I'll make sure to include the link to that stuff in the show notes. Oh, real quick. There's 30 people with Dopey tattoos, which is very gratifying. We've sent 40 people to treatment. Like it's, it's, a, it's, it, we call it the doposphere. You can join the dopey nation and uh, Doug, you're in the dopey nation. Yeah. Right? I'm in the dopey nation. All right, good. And you're going to be a big fitness contributor to our show, which I'm very excited. About. Me too, man. I'm looking forward to getting plugged in and helping the dopey nation. However I can. That sounds good to me. I really appreciate coming on your show. I hope I didn't sound it too. didn't sound too full of myself. Nah, man, you were good. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. Maybe it was something that Dave said about recovery, about addiction, about his incredible story, the ups and downs and everything in between. Whatever the takeaway was, make sure to tag Dave, tag myself, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.